Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, the curious experience of Thomas Dunbar, by Frances Stevens. Um, although this is under her uh, first name, G. M. Barrows. That'd be Gertrude Mabel Barrows. She also later went by Gertrude Mabel Barrows Bennett. And then she got married after her first husband died, and she went as Gertrude... I actually don't know that she went as, but uh, she probably could have gone as Gertrude Mabel Barrows Bennett Gaster. Uh, Her husband's second husband's name was Gaster. Um, She's best known as Frances Stevens. Um, I think you had a little question as to what we should call her when I first suggested this story to you. Um... It turns out that uh, Frances Stevens was not her choice as a pseudonym, uh, but she did take it on after it was given to her. Um, her first story as an adult, um, this story was written at the age of 17, um, was uh, she wanted to have a pseudonym, and the one she suggested was Jean Vale, J-E-A-N-V-A-I-L, which I think is a pretty good pseudonym. (laughs) Yeah. But um, it's interesting because Francis Stevens is spelled F-R-A-N-C-I-S Stevens, um, and that's S-T-E-V-E-N-S, although I don't think that matters very much, but both are male names, right? Francis and Stephen are both male names. Um, And some people think that, um, you know, women were... Um, forced to hide their names behind male pseudonyms um, and that, that that was a good idea or that was a bad idea or whatever. Like I think some people would probably want to call, call her Gertrude Bar- Barrows Bennett. Um, I would just say, you know, whatever's handy, use that handle, right? <laughs> um, but uh, I just think it's interesting that the pseudonym she wanted for herself was a female name. Jean, I guess, can be a male name, but Jean in North America is pretty much J-E-A-N. That's pretty much a female name, right? In America. In French, of course, it's a male name. Sure, sure. And, it, you know, these things can be ambiguous. And G.M. Barrows doesn't tell you the gender of the author either, but it was fairly standard. I mean, this is why H.P. Lovecraft's called H.P. Lovecraft, right? It wasn't to hide the gender as to much. It was a style, I think. Um, does the gender of the author matter in this particularly very interesting short story? Ah, uh, now that's a very difficult question to answer. I think um, if one were to ask, could a male author have written the same story? We'll never know. That's right. I, because... I, although I think many have tried, because this is a very interesting story, Eric. As an artifact, it's incredibly interesting. I think. I agree, and I can I can certainly see at least one way in which the story is a radical departure from the norms of its own subgenre, mm-hmm. and in that regard, one would think that it accords well with someone who is demographically an outlier to the writing community. Mm-hmm. So one might say, for instance, since science fiction writing uh, is dominated at this period in America by white men writing short stories. Um, 
one could think, well, perhaps this is written by a woman or by an immigrant or by someone who's not white. Um, but I don't find anything here that proves <laughs> that the author has to be a female. I do think as far as the pseudonym question goes that just as it would be a little bit perverse to uh, constantly refer to uh, Clemens and uh, Dodson. Absolutely. Um, th- this is Frances Stevens. Absolutely. Uh, she used uh, had her. She used a number of actual legal names, mm-hmm. but she stuck pretty much with one pseudonym, and I think that that's what we should know her by. Yeah, Mark Twain. That's who we're talking about, right? We're talking about Francis Stevens. Whether, exactly. whether that person's name is their actual name doesn't matter to me. Just, just so we know who we're talking about. Um, or Ellery for that matter. Uh, there you go. Well, see, but at least that's uh, that was one person at one point, and then it became m- many people, right? Actually, it was no, no. Ellery Queen started out as two people. Ah, okay. There you go. <laughs> right? And then one of them died, right. and the other one kept going. And then when he died, Ellery Queen, the mystery magazine, continued to produce as if it were still edited by this fictional Ellery Queen. And, of course, C.L. Moore and Henry Kuttner were Henry uh, uh, what, what's Lewis Paget, but also they wrote stories as Henry Kuttner. So right. <laughs> things, get, things can get messy. But right. what's great is, besides the meta information about the story itself, you know, the fact that she was 17 when she wrote this story, um, that it was first published in 1904, which is a little after she was 17. Um, and it's such a f- amazing, remarkable example of an instance where something in the air is being written down and codified and created that is still impacting the common culture of today. Wow. I don't know what you mean by that in this instance. Uh, so how about if I quickly lay out what's going on in the story do. and the obvious plot, and then you'll tell us what you mean about what was in the air. Sure. Okay, good. So it's a first person narration. Uh, the curious experience of Thomas Dunbar. I came back into consciousness, conscious existence with a sighing in my ears like the deep breathing of a great monster. It was everywhere, pervading space, filling my mind to the exclusion of thought. What a wonderful opening paragraph. I'm thinking about how I wasn't thinking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we've got the word monster, and we have what could be a birth, or, I mean, I, I came back into consciousness. I, from what? So mm-hmm. and, and what we find out is that uh, the speaker has been involved in an automobile accident. He was run down by a man who is described in exquisite detail as dwarfish, uh, somewhat oriental. Mm -hmm. Um, It turns out that this fellow who uses only a first name, Lawrence, um, was the offspring of a Japanese woman of ancestral family and an American And he has uh, clearly uh, a cultural exoticism, enormous intellect. He is not uh, trusting of doctors, but we find out that he is a great scientist on his own in his own right, including knowing much about medicine. Mm -hmm. What he's done is saved our fellow 
Uh, and in the course of the his recuperation, having left him alone, Lawrence is off somewhere else. Our, our, our narrator hears a noise. He goes. There's some human screaming behind a door. And I must say that it reminded me of the island of Dr. Moreau. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Narrator wonders, what, what experiments are going on here? Um, he goes in, and there's Lawrence with a couple of workmen. He calls them mechanics. Um, and but suddenly, when something goes awry, Lawrence puts a cylinder of metal into our narrator's hand and rushes to do something. Well, the something has to do with saving a man who is in trouble on a huge apparatus, brilliantly described apparatus. Uh, The short of it is this is large scale industrial machinery and the man is going to die, except our narrator just thoughtlessly again, thrusts himself to stop a huge industrial machine from grinding on forward that would have just mashed the man. And he stops it easily. Mm -hmm. It turns out that he has somehow become super strong. And the, the result of having somehow absorbed the metal that was in his hand because an electric spark went through him while he was holding it as the machinery was all in disarray. Again, reminiscent of perhaps Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. And um, what we find out is that the metal was a new element, stellarite, I guess named after stars. Mm-hmm. And it was perhaps all the stellarite in the world because stellarite, when it becomes in contact with any other metal, immediately gets absorbed and distributed through that metal. So what has happened is that our unnamed narrator, presumably Thomas Dunbar, um, and he has done with the bar of metal that was in his hand. um, Thomas Dunbar has used the world's supply of stellarite to demonstrate two things. One, that it has marvelous powers, and two, that it no longer can be said to exist. And that's the end of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I have my idea about why this is an outsider story in a way, but you had something you said it's really got something going here about what's in the air. Absolutely. And I'd love to know what that is. Well, uh, when I, 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 I'll tell you, I found this story hard, a bit hard to read um, because – I don't know. It's like it's grammatically strange in places. and The sentences are oddly linked. And then there's this giant build up to where he actually leaves the room. And and so I went when I first read it, I was very um, I was like, what is this about? <laughs> what is this? What is behind this door? Who is this guy, Lawrence? Right. Um, and why is he being so secretive? And then it turns out that the story is not anything I like I was expecting. I, I was expecting something. Uh, like, um, I don't know, a weird tale. <laughs> but it's not a weird tale. It has a very, very specific genre. It just didn't have it at that point. Um, uh, one way to classify it would be uh, as a, a genre that became popular and sort of has waned greatly, which is a super science story. There's a couple of science fiction magazines called Super Science. Um, and those are the kinds of stories where there are gigantic dynamos going and 
massive electrical communication systems and laser cannons that can, you know, cut 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 down the moon. Basically, the the stuff that uh, Lex Luthor would be making, right, <laughs> for for <laughs> Superman to defeat. And uh, well, that's not unrelated because this is a superhero origin story. This is. Uh, the first issue, I mean, it's not, but it, it could be very easily the first issue of a new superhero story. And he even gives him a superhero name, which is Samson. You can huh. you can pose as Samson if you like. Your strength is really almost limitless. Now, uh, I say it's in the air because I did extensive research and I've been doing this research my whole life, but I did some very specific extensive research recently. And basically what I've, I found out is there aren't a lot of really good precursors to this. Uh, there, there is a, obviously a massive continuum um, that goes from people like Robin Hood, who is a folk hero. Um, to spring Jack, who is a sort of a phenomenon of mass hypnosis, mass psychosis, mass hysteria, something like that, right? Um, and there are certainly um, characters from mythology that fit into this. But if you go looking for the origins of superheroes, most people will point to Superman. Um, but he's not really the beginning there's a, a novel that precedes Superman that I had previously thought of as the uh, origin point for superheroes. Um, obviously, these are not perfect, but uh, the novel I was thinking of is called Gladiator. It's by Philip Wiley, and it's about a guy who basically has the strength of an insect if they were magnified to the size of a human, right? Uh, so similar to what Ant-Man's explanation is in the Marvel Universe. Um, and in fact, he was turned into a Marvel comic at one point. The important part of um, what I'm getting at here, Eric, is um, generally when we think of superheroes, other than Batman, who has a sort of specific... Excuse me, just to make clear, you mm-hmm. had thought of Gladiator. Oh, yes. Precursor to Superman, but Gladiator is 1930, and this story is 1904. Exactly. And uh, even Batman, who comes out in the 40s, um, you know, Superman's, I think, 38, Batman's 1940 or 41. Um, We have a precursor in this story to uh, the superhero origin story that is not like Batman's. Batman's is much more, in fact, it's shouted out to in the comics and in the movies. It's Zorro. He has a secret identity. He has a, uh, a vehicle. In, in the case of Zorro, it's a horse with a name and a bat cave, literally a bat cave. And he is a do-gooder um, and he has a secondary identity. But he's a human being, if if only an extraordinary one, you know, with wealth and gadgets and stuff he's he's still a human being when you get into the superman style of human being um as in a human being that's been enhanced or or an alien that is explained um this is actually i think a, a fascinating cultural artifact this story because it points to literally something that was in the air which is tying into the ideas of eugenics people being perfected and made better um, as well as tied into uh, the physical culture movement, which was basically going to the gym and lifting weights and look, getting really buff and looking like Charles Atlas except uh, or William Hope Hodgson. Um, and so it has all that. And then it has this 
amazing sort of connection that you can see right up to Spider-Man. In fact, our hero in this story, Thomas Dunbar, the curious experience of, um, is essentially, he's, it's, he has an incident very much like Peter Parker getting bit by a radioactive spider. He suddenly has powers that are irre- irreplicable. Nobody can get those powers again. The certain circumstance had to have happened. There was a irradiated spider, and it, it, gave, it transferred some sort of spider-like powers to Peter Parker, right? This uh, Stellarite <laughs> um, has uh, analogies in modern-day comics like uh, adamantium, which is the um, uh, fictional metal that is imbued in Wolverine's bones that make him indestructible. And there's the uh, vibranium, which is the stuff that um, makes uh, Captain America's shield so bulletproof, right? Um, th- the, this super science element uh, is, is used to not transform society, but to transform humanity. And it, it's really interesting if you look at the origins of superheroes. I'm, I know I'm going off on a tangent here, but it, it's so <laughs> shocking here to me to see everything that's going on. The most iconic image of Superman is in the very first issue of Action Comics, with Superman lifting up a, an automobile over his head in basically a weightlifter's costume. He's got a cape. And he's throwing this car as regular men in fedoras run and fl- flee. He's using his abilities, uh, which are extraordinarily and super, to change society. And that is a, a phenomenon that is, you know, right in our culture today. This idea of, of a hero with extraordinary abilities and you know, it, it was exploited uh, with Captain America during the war. It's uh, still being around today with popularity of Captain America as a character. This is not um, uh, a nothing. And I just had no idea that Gertrude Baird's Bennett, a.k.a. Uh, Francis Stevens, had any hand in it. And I don't think anybody else knew either because this story is not well known. It's not listed on any of the superhero things, and yet it is a superhero origin story, as far as I can tell. I think that's a wonderful way to look at it. Um, I, there are a lot of other aspects to this notion of superhero origin that I think are worth pulling into this. Uh, for one, at the end, we have uh, these, these lines. Uh, if I had, this is this is Lawrence speaking to Thomas Dunbar. If I had but known before that it was electricity and animal magnetism, so here are those things that are timely, as you were saying, Jesse, mm-hmm. that were needed to complete the combination that is a stellarite in a person. But now it means years of patience at best, because Lawrence has lost his supply of stellarite. He shook his head dismally. And I, I mused, rather to myself than to him. Oh, you, he smiled. And his face ran into that tempest of wrinkles. Mm-hmm. This is what we got, the description of his face when we first met him. You can pose as Samson if you like. Your strength is really almost limitless. Now, you've pointed out to us, Jesse, that he's called Samson. Um, it's a, he's a superhero, you said, and he even has a name. Mm-hmm. Well, the name is a darned important one because Samson is blessed by God with having that super strength. That is the biblical Samson. Mm-hmm. 
And there are other examples of superheroes, not someone who just is really smart and works out a lot like Batman, Mm -hmm. which is 1939, um, Mm -hmm. um, but actually is supernatural. Samson is one, and so is Achilles. Mm -hmm. And I think that if we look historically at these superheroes, their origins tell us something about the ethical responsibilities and dangers of being stronger than the group. Mm-hmm. In, a, in a way, Samson is the other side of the coin of David and David and Goliath. Mm-hmm. It's more important somehow to be a fully good individual. So you have a book like More Than Human, in which we get a group of different supernatural beings. And then only when the one character who comes together, who's an ordinary person, joins them, do they really grow to become this next level of human being. By the way, in that novel, if I recall correctly, the name of that uh, ordinary human being who's our touchstone is Barrows. Oh. Um, I may be mistaken. That's that Theodore Sturgeon novel you're talking about. It is indeed. Mm-hmm. Um from the 1950s. Uh, So uh, depending upon how you think about superheroes and their origins, uh, they, they really go back a long way. I think more specifically, this looks so prescient because we're talking about accidental scientific conversion. That's exactly right. Right. And in a way then Superman is an accidental scientific conversion the accident is that he's converted by moving from the heavy gravity Krypton to the lower gravity. Um, and the red sun versus the yellow sun. Exactly. He's an alien, right? Exactly. But if that's what makes him so strong, we need to notice that that was 1938, mm-hmm. that um, 40 years earlier, H.G. Wells in The War of the Worlds gives us Martians who are significantly weaker because they have been raised in a planet with one-third the gravity mm-hmm. of Earth's they get here. So this notion of accidental conversion, uh, uh, it, it does exist. The question then is, are we going to talk about this as heroic? And you were making that social that social concern. He, he literally does a, uh, a hero move, right? He, st- he throws himself into the machine and breaks the machine, right? Um, Absolutely. He, he, he thought he was going to get ground up by the gears, I guess, uh, although he didn't. He, he acted instinctually. Um, it's, it's so shocking to me because she doesn't have there, – there really isn't anything there, – there is a comic book called – I think it was Hugo Hercules from 1902 that ran in the Chicago Tribune for less than six months. Um, and he, as far as I know, he didn't have a, a – you know, a, an origin story like that. He's just a strong kid. And we've seen that. Uh, there's a Wells story about a uh, mad scientist who makes a strong kid by, you know, using growth hormone, essentially. It's the food of the gods, I believe. Right, um, 1906. Right. So um, the, the, it's in the air. He doesn't make a strong kid. He makes a whole strong society. He, well, he, he, he also had like, the he starts yeah, feeding his the kid the superfood, right? And it makes his kid the, grow. That's in the beginning. What happens is we get a society of super people in that Wells novel. And again, the fact of the possibility that science can change us and make us, in this case, stronger, is what comes up for social consideration. There's a point at which 
the little people, the, the older people, us, um, say that they resent the super people and they object to them as violating the rules of law because what has happened is they've tried to avoid them. That is, the little people have tried to avoid the, the stronger people. So the stronger people have filled canisters with this food that makes people get three times bigger, smarter, and taller mm-hmm. and stronger and lobbed it into their walled cities, hoping that they will eat it and become better. But the little people look upon this improvement as changing them fundamentally and so complain about these gifts of food as if they were bombardments uh, in violation of the conventions of war. The the notion that the good guys may be the bad guys, that the hero may be super but not necessarily heroic, that's something that that goes on a long a long way. It and does. I think it goes up to today. It, oh absolutely. I've just been watching uh the boys. On, I, was, uh, I was just thinking that. And the Watchmen on HBO. It's it's all over yeah. the place. Uh, so when he or when Lawrence uh, says to Thomas Dunbar, oh, you, you can pose as Samson if you like. Uh, I, I'm old enough to remember when there was a permanent sideshow at Coney Island. Mm-hmm. And I used to go down there and see uh, the, the so-called, it's a terrible word to use now, freaks. Um, and indeed, the strong man was typically called Samson, either mm-hmm. Samson or Hercules, right? Mm-hmm. So when... Lawrence says, you know, Thomas says, what about me? Lawrence says, well, you, you can pose as Samson. You can make a living by being a strong man. Mm -hmm. It's the most benign possible thing. He doesn't mean you can bring down the the palace the way the biblical Samson does. Mm -hmm. He means you can become a sideshow. This is benign. Now, what I see here is a, a slightly different piece of genre that you made reference to when you use the term mad scientist. Mm-hmm. There is a long history of mad scientist stories. And one of the things about mad scientist stories like Crowball the Conqueror by Jules Verne is that they're not good for society. Mm-hmm. They do bad things, right? We don't want mad scientists in charge of anything. But this mad scientist story is one in which the mad scientist only helps our main character, and the story ends not in tragedy, but a joke. Mm-hmm. Now, that seems to me to be quite, quite different in its treatment of the mad scientist motif from all of the others that I could think of. This is not the island of Dr. Moreau at all. And it's for that reason that I think when you asked, as we began, Does it matter that this is written by a woman? Well, I don't know, but it certainly is perhaps not merely coincidental that this benign, jocular, enormously unusual, as you have pointed out, take on the mad scientist story is written by someone who is an extraordinarily unusual individual to find trying to compete in the world of male science fiction writers. Mm-hmm. I would say uh, the, the, the other thing that shocked me was I thought that this was going to be some sort of yellow peril story because so early on we're given this the character who eventually we learn the name of is Lawrence, who only has the one name, who uh, has a, a massive backstory. 
Um, it's uh, and 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 then ultimately is just it, he is just a a person. He's not the villain. He's not um, you know a, a romantic interest. He's his Asianness, right? And it's heavily described. Is not it's sort of incidental. It's flavor. It's um, maybe he's uh, and because he's he's not even uh, wholly Japanese. He's half and half. It's it's almost like it's pro uh, racial mixing in a time when uh, the Yellow Peril was not at its peak but on the rise. And I, 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 it's extraordinary. I just I was I was totally unexpected. Well, I I agree. I think there's a lot about the story that that is much subtler than one would think. Even if if you were to take the view that you have suggested to us about seeing this as a as a pioneering work in superhero origins, or that I'm suggesting as a an extraordinary um, foil to the typical mad scientist story, I would point out that the two mechanics who are working in this laboratory Canadians. Uh, well, at least one of them is a Canadian. And when um, when Thomas hears human voices behind the door, he hears yelling in French and English, mm-hmm. French and English. Why do I say that that's interesting? Well, as you have just pointed out, there is a culture crossing here, both in biology and in both in nature and nurture in Lawrence's background. And there is a culture crossing here in Canada, including the French and the English. But I would point out to you that there is an obsolete use of the word experience in English. Yes. Which is still a valid, statistically normal use of the word experience in French, which means experiment. Now, the curi- if we reread the title as the curious experiment of Thomas Dunbar... What exactly is this experiment? What, who ran it and what was its purpose? The opening paragraphs tell us that Thomas was run down by Lawrence. And rather than letting ambulance come and doctors take him away, Lawrence took him back himself and attended to him personally for the five days between the accident and the narrative present, keeping him in a room just down the hall from his laboratory. I can't help but wonder if, in a much darker way, Francis Stevens is suggesting that the experiment of Thomas Dunbar was imposed upon him Mm. by Lawrence, that Lawrence did an experiment to see what would happen. I mean, he does all kinds of amazing things somehow. There's no pain left whatsoever when he awakens. Uh, maybe Stellarite was already being used <laughs> to make this extraordinary recovery. And in fact, the mad scientist is not simply someone who creates a joke, but in a deeper way we need to understand is willing to harness technology to run us down in order to satisfy his own curiosity. I'll have to tune this in is, uh, next next issue to find out. Well, that's because there's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, 
You can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.com.